For young gay men, being a part of sports can be a traumatic experience. A study conducted in 2015 by Out on the Fields claimed that 81% of Canadian participants witness or experience homophobia in sports. 70% of them believe that youth sports are not welcoming or safe for LGBTQ people. Regardless of barriers, LGBTQ athletes continue to work their way up the ranks in their respective sports to pursue their passions. However, these athletes often feel they must conceal their sexual orientation, gender identification, or expression, which diverts their attention away from training and impacts their ability to focus on their sport. This sadly leads to a decrease in performance, a high level of LGBTQ attrition, and a significant impact on their mental health. Today's guest will share his revealing story of the struggles he faced as a gay man in hockey, from his accomplishments to his darkest moments. He will talk about his coming out journey and his experiences in an attempt to help end homophobia in sport. For some listeners, you may relate to his story because you, or someone close to you, has lived it. For others, we hope it will open your eyes to a new and unfortunate reality that many gay men face when playing the sport they love. As you listen, keep in mind that roughly one in four people are a part of the LGBTQ community. These are your teammates, your coaches, your referees, or even the fans sitting next to you, and all of them need your support. Sporting Change is honored to welcome Brock McGillis, a leading activist in the LGBTQ community. Brock, whose pronouns are he and him, developed a love for hockey from a young age. During his athletic career, Brock played in the OHL, professionally in both the United States and the Netherlands, and at Montreal's Concordia University. Later in his career, Brock took on a coaching role and worked with countless athletes and teams both on and off the ice. When Brock came out publicly in 2016, he became the first openly gay player in men's professional hockey. This historic moment made Brock a trailblazer in his sport as well as a prominent advocate in the LGBTQ community. Brock now speaks around the world at schools, corporations, conferences, and provides inclusivity training for companies. His continuous work to shift the conversation in sport earned him recognition as one of Hockey News's 100 Most Influential People in Hockey for 2022. Alongside his international speaking engagements and educational content, Brock hosts a digital series with World of Wonder, the creator of RuPaul's Drag Race. Brock has a bachelor's in communication and sports communication from Laurentian University and is certified in EDI from Cornell University. Brock's education and lived experiences make him an influential LGBTQ advocate, both in the world of sports and beyond. For today's episode, Brock connects from Treaty 13 and Rain and I from Treaty 6 territories. We acknowledge how fortunate we are for the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit who have lived in and cared for these lands for generations. We celebrate the traditional knowledge keepers and elders who are still with us today and those who have come before us. We are privileged to come together, connect, and share stories just as our First Nation communities have done for centuries. We welcome you to join us in our journey to learn of our country's history and amplify the voices and stories of First Nation peoples. Welcome to Sporting Change, Brock. It is a total honor to have you as a guest speaker on our podcast. Matt and I have really looked forward to this recording. You are such a huge icon in the LGBTQ plus sports community, and we're really excited to welcome you. Could you share a little bit with our listeners your experience in sport and how it brought you to where you are today? 
Well, thank you so much for those kind words. I mean, icon, goodness. I don't think I'm there yet, but maybe someday. I'll go back to the beginning. I remember being six years old and I was watching a movie with my parents and there's a gay character and I said, what if I'm gay? And they said, if you're gay, you're gay, you're bro. We love you. And I went to my room and cried. That story remained in the back of my mind, but it wasn't at the forefront because something else was growing up, hockey. And I grew up like a stereotypical Canadian kid. I lived down the street from an arena. I'd carry my equipment to the rink every day after school, hoping nobody was on the ice or they were short a goaltender and I would jump on and it was a small town in Northern Ontario. So the snowbanks were taller than me. On the weekends, my parents would drop off my meals at the rink. I got pretty good at hockey and before I knew it, I was moving on to play AAA and junior and to the OHL and eventually to pro. When I got to junior and then to the OHL, I started to really struggle because I realized I was different. That conversation I had with my parents when I was six years old started to really come more to the forefront because as players were talking about girls and women in the locker room and whatnot, I, I just didn't really resonate with it. But I didn't think I could be gay and play hockey because the language I heard in those spaces were incredibly homophobic. Homophobic slurs were thrown around as much as pass the puck or shoot the puck. Made me feel like I was bad or wrong or couldn't be myself. So I hit it and I began to adhere to the hypermasculine norms of the culture. I was a womanizer. I'm ashamed to admit that today, but I was, was a cocky hockey bro that walked into any room like I owned it. I acted like I was so sweet. In my teens and I'd get my friends into clubs, VIP, like, owners of bars coming up to us with trays of shots. Like I was a child and my friends thought I had this pretty great life. What they didn't know is I'd go home at night and I'd cry. I hated myself. I wanted to die. And on more than one occasion, I tried to die. I attempted to unsuccessfully, thankfully. And I was really hurting and struggling and nobody knew I was hiding it and began to impact my play. I had I was incredibly depressed. I had season-ending injuries every year from the age of 15 until I retired in my late 20s. I was suicidal. By the age of 18, I started drinking daily. I think 18 to 23, I drank every day. And I wasn't bullied. I wasn't teased for being gay. I was a womanizing hockey bro. I fit into the culture. And yet, I still felt that way. Finally, at 23, I was playing in Europe. My career derailed. I'd gone from being on NHL draft list and supposed to have this like linear trajectory to the NHL to not being picked, having season-ending injuries every year, and I was playing the minors in Europe. And I sat myself down one day and had a mini, you know, I don't know if it was an epiphany or meltdown or a combination of both. But... I just said, Brock, you need to figure out who you are because I knew two things were about to happen. Number one, my hockey career was ending, it derailed. And number two, and most importantly, if I didn't figure out who I was and I continued down this path of drinking daily and being incredibly depressed and not working through any of it and suicidal, I was going to be dead. So I came back from that season and I'm originally from Sudbury, Ontario, but I went to Toronto and I went on a date with a guy and I went, oh, shoot, this is who I am. I'm gay. At first, I thought, this is incredible. I'm gay. Like, I had been suppressing it for so long. It wasn't even that I was in the closet. It was total suppression. 
my career is going to get back on track. Everything's going to be great. I'm going to be happy. Life's going to be phenomenal. But it actually got worse once I figured that out because that guy I went on a date with, I ended up dating. And we dated for three years while I was playing hockey. So I hid him and I hid who I was. I dated him for three years and he didn't meet a soul in my life. Not a friend, family member, anyone. And we had an alias that we used for me with his friends so that they wouldn't figure out who I was on social media, out me, and potentially jeopardize my hockey career. Three years of that. So now I was so deeply rooted in the closet, I was hiding not only myself, I was hiding somebody else. Eventually that ended and I moved to Montreal and decided, I decided to take a step back from professional hockey and go to Concordia in Montreal. But I chose to play on the hockey team just in case, just in case I wanted to take another run at the NHL and having the career I thought I was destined for. And injuries continued and different things happened. But while I was there, I was watching a hockey game on TV one night and then between periods, there was this young guy being interviewed. And I wasn't fully paying attention, but he was talking about how he wanted to follow in his father's footsteps, making the NHL as general manager and all this stuff. And I was like, whatever. And then he goes, and I'm gay. And my head whipped around and stared at that TV so fast because the only time I heard somebody say that they were gay in hockey or the words gay in hockey is when they were one player's calling another player gay. And that person's name is Brendan Burke. And Brendan is the son of Brian Burke, who now runs the Pittsburgh Penguins, but at the time he was the general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Well, I reached out to Brendan that night and we instantly formed a friendship. It was such a relief to have somebody in my life I could talk to about being gay and also being in hockey and the duality of the two. It was a relief that, you know, I could talk about my breakup with somebody because the only thing worse than dating somebody for three years without anyone knowing is breaking up with them, being really sad about it, and nobody knowing why you're so mopey and you can't tell anyone. Brendan and I spoke every day and I think it was good for him too because he had this hockey family and then he had gay friends, but I was the person who understood the duality for him too and he was thrust into the media spotlight. We spoke almost every day and formed a really great bond. And then one day he sent me a message and it was, I can't wait for the day that you're out to your family like I am to mine. And I remember looking at my phone and going, oh, I'm not dealing with this. And not because I didn't think my family would be inclusive or supportive. They told me when I was six, but because they were so involved in hockey. My brother was a first round pick in the OHL and played professional hockey. My dad coached AAA and junior hockey in Sudbury for 30 plus years. And he also scouted in the OHL for a long time. And I was afraid that they would become more sensitive to the language used in locker rooms, the attitudes and behaviors that are so pervasive in sport culture. In the process of recognizing it, they would stand up to it and accidentally out me, which could jeopardize any opportunity I had to move on in the game. So I remember looking at Brendan's message and going, no, I'm not dealing with this. Those ended up being the last words Brendan ever said to me. Two days later, he passed away in a car accident. And I was sitting in Montreal. My only friend who knows my whole life has just passed away. I'm still dealing with the breakup of the first person I ever loved. 
and nobody knows any of this. Like I'm sitting alone with it and I'm still dealing with the fact that I'm gay and nobody knows the depression and everything I'd been going through for so long. And I'd gone to therapy and I would lie. And even when I was dating the first boyfriend, I would lie and say, yeah, I got into a fight with my girlfriend and different things. I didn't even want the therapist to know. There was so much in that moment. And I just said, well, I got to find a way to honor him. And I looked at that last message and I went, all right, I have to do this. So I sat my brother down and I said, Corey, I'm gay. My brother's like, I was a hockey bro. My brother's the epitome of a hyper-masculine hockey guy. He's a six foot two power forward who fought, scored goals, hit people. I said, Corey, I'm gay. And he said, yeah, so you're Brock. I love you. And I ended up at first I was like, really? This is all I get? Like I'm pouring my heart out here, but genuinely it's what I needed was yeah. So like it's irrelevant to me. Like it doesn't matter to me. And I told all my family and friends, anyone who wasn't involved in hockey, even after I retired from playing, I didn't tell anyone in hockey. I moved back to Sudbury and I started working with athletes and I was working, I was coaching, but I was also, I ran off-ice training business on my skill development businesses in Sudbury. And I was working with about a hundred hockey players a day. And I was genuinely concerned that if their parents knew, most of them were, you know, kids and teenagers, that they wouldn't want their child, mostly boys, to train with me. There isn't a ton of exposure to LGBTQ plus in Sudbury or in hockey culture for that matter. So I was genuinely concerned. Then one day I got a phone call from a hockey mom and she said, Brock, I want to set you up on a date. And this is about five or six years into running businesses. And I said, what's her name? She said, Steve. I said, what? And she said, Brock, you're gay. I'm like, what? And she became a little impatient. She's like, you're really gay. I'm like, how do you know this? And she's like, oh, my son told me. I'm like, how does, he was 15. I'm like, how does he know this? And she's like, oh, all the boys know. They've known for years. My heart started to race. Like I was employing people. Like I had, I didn't have to lay people off. Like all these kids are going to leave. All, like nobody's going to want to work with me. My heart's racing. I'm panicked. I'm like, what am I going to do? This is how I like pay my bills. I'm still in school. Like, how am I going to pay for that? And then I thought, wait, you know, after I got through that irrational panic, I went, wait, all these cocky hockey bros, the way I was, no, I'm gay and choose to work with me. And at that moment, I thought, well, maybe I should come out to them, but I didn't. Instead, I decided to do a little sociology experiment because I recognized something. They know I'm gay but they don't know that I know that they know that I'm gay. So I decided to observe their behaviors, like hockey players in their natural habitat, almost like animals in the wild. And I started to recognize that anytime they'd say something homophobic, they'd freeze up and apologize to me. And I thought, cool, like, okay, maybe we're creating a shift here. They're starting to recognize we have uh, the hockey world's incredibly insular and we have this little bubble within that bubble and we're creating a little shift here. They thought, or maybe they just apologize to me and they go to school or to the arena or on the ice and they call kids fags. And genuinely, I had no idea until one day I wasn't there and I had a sprint coach working with some athletes on a track. And at the end of a two-hour workout, he told them that they had 10 more 200-meter sprints. One of the younger players who comes from a very progressive household looked at the sprint coach and said, this is so gay, I can't believe you're making us do this. And one of the older players who was more immersed in the culture more ingrained in hockey culture, stepped up and said, we don't say that here. Give me 50 push-ups." And the younger player said, you're right. 
And that became something my athletes adopted and held each other accountable with. Is anytime they'd say something homophobic, they freeze up and do push-ups. And because hockey players have influence and athletes have influence in broader culture, they brought it to their peers at school, to their teammates, to their friends, their party friends. They brought it to everyone they knew. Before I knew it, people I didn't even know were doing push-ups for using homophobic language. One night, the younger player, one of his teammates was on FaceTime with his girlfriend. And she says, let's hang out. And he says, no, I can't have practice. She says, that's so gay, you never want to hang out with me. And he looks at her and says, give me 50 push-ups right now or we're breaking up. And they both drop down on FaceTime and do 50 push-ups. And it was in that moment that I knew shifts could happen in these cultures. It's when I first became aware that shifts could happen. I had unintentionally, inadvertently created a shift in all these hockey players, and they did in me. They made me more aware. And I should have come out at that point and started doing what I do now, but frankly, I was afraid. Except a few things gave me a kick in the butt I needed. Some people started to expose my sexuality in Northern Ontario, where I was, and a hockey association that I grew up playing in, that I was volunteer coaching in, that my brother grew up playing in, and my dad and brother were both volunteer coaching in as well. Blackballed my business from working with athletes in season. I was the only person who did off-ice training on ice skill development that was volunteering my time coaching. And I was the only one not allowed to train their athletes in season. Yet in the off-season, I trained the vast majority of the elite players. True to form, my dad saw the president of the association at, the, at an arena one night and said, is it because Brock's gay? And he denied knowing, even though hockey mom told me people were finding out. I knew he knew. Well, I guess he went and called some coaches who I was volunteer coaching with, like some friends, like people that I considered buddies, and told them that I was gay. And the next day I showed up to a rink and one coach said, I no longer need your help. Thanks. Bye kicked me off his staff. And this is somebody I considered a friend. This is somebody I was coaching with for years. And out of nowhere, not even, you know, wait until I got to the ring to shame me in front of everyone. And there's no way to prove that it was because I was gay. Nothing had changed from the day before, a week before, a year before. And every fear I ever had in that culture started to come true. Other teams did the same thing. It was the lowest I'd ever felt in that space. And then shortly after, a couple of other things happened. There was the massacre at Pulse Nightclub in Orlando, where 49 people were murdered just for being part of the LGBTQ plus community. And the reality is for my community, our community, like it's those spaces are supposed to be safe spaces. The way most kids go into locker rooms and feel comfortable, those nightclubs and queer spaces are spaces where people can go and love who they love and be themselves and, and exist openly without fears of violence, harassment, taunting, etc. that exist in society, whether you're in, I'm in Toronto, you could be in Vancouver, Montreal, New York, LA, these things still happen. Just look at the rates of trans women that are murdered annually, and more specifically, black trans women. Look at the rates of hate crimes, like they still exist. Queer people are still under attack on the internet. Like it's not going away. And we're seeing in America right now what's happening with rights and whatnot of women, queer people, etc. And that really hit me because it was like, this is real. And that could have easily been me and my friends in Toronto. 
less than a week later, I had a friend who was running, I'm not going to say the name of the organization, but he was running a major LGBTQ plus organization. He had been in the media a lot that month. It was Pride Month. Um, he was hosting a charity event the upcoming Friday and called me on the Wednesday and he said, Brock, I don't think you should come. It was going to be a lot of fun. I was really pumped for it. And I said, well, sucks. Why not? And he goes, Brock, I just got a call from the RCMP and I'm on a terrorist hit list. And at the time, different groups were taking credit for Pulse. And I said, man, that's not funny. You can't joke. Like, don't. That's not cool. He said, Brock, they have a picture of me. This is real. So I said, well, are you going to the event? And he said, yeah, I have to. And I said, well, I'm coming with you. I remember that Friday night, we were standing outside of his condo and we chugged a drink for a little liquid courage. And we got into an Uber and we looked at each other like, we're going to die tonight. We got to the event. I've never been to a charity event before where they had metal detector wands out. They were frisking everyone at the door. We had undercover security and officers around us the entire night. And there was a moment I was just standing alone. I was staring at all this happening. I was thinking like, this is insane. Be on insane. Like, what is happening? And I'm like, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing anything. I have to do something. So the next day, I reached out to a friend of mine who's a journalist, Sanaya Sapurji. She's now with The Athletic. At the time, she was with Yahoo Sports. And I said, I'm coming out. And Sanaya actually was there through some of my darkest struggles. She covered the OHL when I was trying to die by suicide. And I remember calling her one night and she talked me out of dying. And I said, I'm coming out. She said, are you sure? I said, I have to. She's like, all right, let's do it. So I wrote an article for Yahoo Sports coming out. It came out in November 2016. I thought maybe at the very least I was going to empower myself so people can use my sexuality, weaponize it against me without it being so overt. Maybe I'd help a few people and it changed my life forever. I received over 10,000 messages from people all over the world that first day. Positive, negative, need for help and support, you name it, I got it. Before I knew it, I was getting calls to speak. I started in high schools, and before I knew it, I, knew it, I was in corporations, events, uh, sports teams all over the world. I do a digital series with RuPaul's Drag Race now. Like My life has changed forever. I've shut down my hockey businesses and now I do this work in speaking and advocacy work and humanizing issues as my job. That's how I got here. Wow, that is such a powerful story. And I think there's so many pieces to that that are jaw-dropping, heartwarming. And I also think it's a story that maybe there are other athletes that go through those same things. And one thing that you mentioned that really kind of stuck with me is you've said that since coming out, you've had lots of other athletes contacting you that are in similar situations that aren't ready to come out yet. Um, and I think that's a really kind of powerful role that you've taken on. What does that potentially say about the support they get from their leagues? I think sports in general, I think there's a lot of well-intentioned people doing things that they think are right and that maybe they've been guided by certain people to do things not for profits etc but a lot of the work that's been done to this point and at one point that was revolutionary is performative by today's standards rainbow night in any sport is not 
helping the queer kid in the locker room. It's not shifting locker room culture. And that goes beyond just leagues. That's teams, that is coaches, that is general managers, that is the people running sport at, let's say, Hockey Canada. There's a need to go beyond, and it's not just education, it's humanizing issues, so it becomes relatable, it's educating, it's reforming folks that don't adhere or do things that kind of step out of line. There's so much that is being missed, and instead we have Rainbow Nights, and it's easy and it's simple and it's, it looks nice in photos and whatnot, but it's doing nothing for your culture. It, studies have shown it doesn't change a locker room. It, studies have shown it doesn't, you know, do anything to fix it or make it a more safe or inclusive place for queer fans or athletes. They may feel seen in a moment, but it's a moment and it can't be a moment. So. By today's standards, there's very few that are doing the bare minimum, let alone enough. I can't help but relate to the story I had. It's a different sport, different culture, but same reality. And if I'm feeling the same way, trying to come out in my culture, my sport, I can only imagine how many athletes are out there having to go through the same thing. But when you're gay and you're in sport, like you mentioned earlier, you're doing everything to hide it. You're going to the point of being a womanizer, being that bro, being the one that says those homophobic remarks. And I'm guilty as well because you have to fit in. And the hurt is so lonely, not just the hurt, but the happiness as well, right? The dating and being anonymous in your dating life. It's like, what's nicer but to share, hey, I'm in a new relationship. And what's harder than to share, hey, my heart is broken. How do you go and help the people that are still in the closet? I think the ones that aren't reaching out from what I've seen that when they get to a point that they do reach out, they've been following me for a while. Typically, when they're not ready to have the real conversation, some will reach out if they're struggling immensely, like if it's like dire those ones will reach out, but the ones that are just kind of hiding and in the shadows, they will follow from a distance. So for me, the best thing I can do for them is unapologetically live as a gay man in this space and show it off every chance I get in the hopes that it makes them feel good and it gives them hope. When I was in Montreal, struggling i used to drive around and there was a show on sirius xm sirius xm used to have a, a station called out q and it was just talk radio but it was all lgbtq plus focused and there was a show called Derek and romaine and i would drive around and listen to them i actually they became some of the first people i ever came out to i became brave enough to call it and sort of anonymously just brock in toronto or Montreal or whatever, wherever I was at that point. 
And eventually I would talk to them off air and email with them. And Romaine was actually Matthew Shepard's best friend. For those who don't know, Matthew Shepard was one of the first major hate crime cases in the United States in Wyoming. He was murdered. The Westboro Baptist Church came to protest at the court hearings and they were anti-LGBTQ plus and became a whole thing while well, she was his best friend and encounter started a counter protest to um, essentially block out all the protesters from the media became global, like international media was there covering this in the 90s. So I became friends with her and Derek, who was the co-host, and they were some of the first people I ever came out to, and they were support. But just listening to them every night, I felt like I had a bit of a community, and I also felt like, you know, with their callers and everything, they talked about their lives in New York City and everything else and living queer lives. There was a relatability there that I, I felt comfortable with them, so then I could talk to them. So for me, it's doing that as much as possible, you know, like leveraging my social media platforms and followings to share my queer experiences and to share going out, to share my relationship, to share as much as I can so that those that are in the shadows watching me the way I was watching others and the way people have watched me, they can have hope and feel like there's that duality can exist. You can be going to queer bars and be gay and also, you know, exist in the sporting space. And now I brought a street NHL player to a gay bar. It was a, an event and he just looked at me and he posted about it and we posted and there was a bunch of us there and he said, this is way more fun than straight bars. And I said, <laughs> yeah, you should tell all your friends. I just hope that that will give other people, you know, some form of like hope, you know, also let them into my life to the point that they feel a part of it, that they feel comfortable coming to me. You talked about the duality, the having the sport identity completely separate from the gay identity. And I've lived it. I still live it in some aspects of my life. What will it take to bridge that gap so that you can just be both and not separate? We need to break the barriers of conformity in sports cultures. I know this side more uh, in regards to the men's side of sports as opposed to women's side of sports. So I'm going to focus more on that right now because I think in terms of this, like LGBTQ plus and a few different things, at least it's less inclusive. There's only certain things you can talk about in a locker room. And this is definitely in hockey, but it comes across in other sports as well. I can tell you it's the same in the change room for water polo women video games partying and sports you can tell an athlete and you can almost tell which sport they play based off the way they dress the way they walk the way they talk we conform to our culture and we are products of it because we spend so much time in it and generations before us have created these rigid sort of expectations of who you are, how you act and how you look and what you do. It's not real. It's not who any of us are, you know, and yet every sports team or group uses analogies like their families or brothers and stuff like that. Yet all you can talk about is these four things with your brothers. Like you're deeper than that. There's more to you than that. I do breakouts with teams now where I'm like, 
And it's after an hour of being vulnerable and sharing a lot about myself, you know, giving them tools and everything else. And also, you know, creating a, an environment where everyone feels comfortable. But I'm like, okay, tell me something you would typically tell a teammate you enjoy. We get some pretty cool stuff said. But when they recognize this and they recognize that normal doesn't exist and normal is a fallacy, it's an illusion, we're all a bunch of weirdos and that's a beautiful thing. When they recognize that and they embrace that, they're going to be less likely to judge the queer kid. They're going to be less likely to judge the Muslim kid. They're going to be less likely to judge the black kid. There's going to be more of an openness because they're not tied to some rigid norm either. When they can embrace who they are, they're going to be less likely to judge others for who they are. That's so powerful. I mean, you've been immersed in the world of sports since you were six. or So you've lived it as an athlete coach, and now you kind of shifted to influence the shift makers. Have you seen that difference? Are we on the right track? I don't think players would have chosen to work with me or parents would have allowed players to work with me in Northern Ontario 10 years prior to when they did. And that was, you know, 2016 or so, 2015. I probably started the businesses in 2012 or 13. We've definitely seen an evolution. I think kids today, like I go to schools or to sports teams, like I'll go into a major junior locker room and there's some similarities. There's some things that haven't changed, and that is a product of the vicious cycle that has been perpetuated generation after generation. You know, you have coaches or ex-players who came from the culture and have spent their whole lives in the culture and have been influenced by the generation before them. So they're, you know, projecting that same type of norm onto these kids there's still a lot of rigidness within it. There's definitely a rigid culture, but I will say this. And, and even the language hasn't necessarily evolved because it's been normalized as much as, you know, common English has been normalized in that culture. So has homophobic, sexist, racist language. I think in thought and in theory, they are far more inclusive than any other generation. I would say, you know, Gen Z is, or younger millennials, they have been exposed to more their entire lives. Kids are coming out of their schools at very young ages. Television shows share not just, you know, a comedic, effeminate gay man, but like actual queer stories, not just queer television, but like in what would be considered a straight TV show. They've been exposed to it. They have siblings or relatives or family friends who've come out. They, they're exposed to so much more at a young age, which makes them, in theory, more inclusive. They're cool with it. But I don't think their language and behaviors have caught up to their thoughts. And that is the environment. They're a product of an environment, and this has been ingrained in them. And that aspect is still there and is tough to break and crack. That aspect needs to evolve, but the younger folks are definitely more progressive in thought. The next question I have might be hard to answer, but where should we focus to bring on change, to stop homophobia in sport? And 
it could be organization, coaches, athletes, like where should their focus be? Like the bigger leagues, the smaller leagues, like where should it be? I think it can't just be a one area focus. I think if it is, then there's going to be too many gaps. It'll never evolve. I think there's a lot we need to do top down, bottom up with an emphasis on, you know, so you take the elite at the top, pick the sport, doesn't matter. Do it at the bottom, just, you know, entry level into the sport. And then I think the middle ground, the middle matters. And that would be, you know, the people that are on the cusp of getting to that, you know, top upper echelon of their sport, but are, you know, just on the cups, so they may be a little younger and whatnot. Just and the reason for that is I think you look at most sports, and I'll use hockey as the example here. Connor McDavid, Sidney Crosby, that's Brad Pitt. They're not like engaging or accessible to the public. They're, you know, they might sign autographs, show up at the odd event, blah, 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 smile, you know, shake hands, kiss babies, and get out. But those people that are on the cusp, whether it's major junior players, NCAA players, lower level professionals, they are accessible to everyone. I I equate them to being if the elite NHL players are Brad Pitt, then they're like Instagram influencers or YouTubers. They're famous. They're revered the same way by the culture, in a sense, in their communities where they're playing. However, they are accessible. They go to school with their peers. They go to parties with their peers. Younger kids that are still have, you know, the ability to access them. And what they say, what they do, the way they act is then mimicked and copied by society and influences. So if we target them, obviously you need to target the top only because they influence those YouTuber Instagram types. Brad Pitt influences, you know, the YouTubers. The YouTubers influence the ones starting out. And then that cycle continues to perpetuate and pick the sport. It's probably the same across the board in every single sport. It needs to be a multi-tiered approach. I also think it needs to be beyond education. I think if you go into these insular environments with an education module or something on homophobia, they're going to tune it out within five seconds. It's not relatable to them. What does that have to do with them? How does that impact them? Like, this isn't us. There's no queer people here. There's no gay people here. Why, like, what does this have to do with me? These issues need to be humanized. We need to take the lived experience of people within the culture and how it's impacted them and do it in a way that isn't malicious, that doesn't target them, that doesn't make them defensive because there is a little bit of fragility there share stories in a way that makes them go, oh, this is impacting people I know. This could be impacting my friend. This could be impacting my teammate. And then ultimately impacting the team because my teammate's not going to play. I didn't play as well as I could have. I was constantly hurt. I was depressed and I was drinking every day. I didn't reach my full potential in the sport of hockey. That's just flat out reality. You know, how much more could I have helped the team had I been able to be me? So just recognizing that even if they're not super inclusive or progressive in their thoughts, they all want to win. They all want to do better. And if you're impacting teammates that way, then ultimately you're not going to do as well. 
And beyond that, today, all these people know somebody who's part of the community, a family member, a relative, right? Like a friend, a friend's friend or somebody. Well, that language and behavior, especially if you're an influencer, then trickles into mainstream society. And eventually that person, you know, whether you've said it to them or not, it's going to get to them. You are a part of the reason why it has. Just hearing homonegative language on a really regular basis made me suicidal. Made me think I couldn't be me. Wasn't directed at me. Maybe the odd time, no different than any other person in the locker room, but made me feel bad or wrong, like it couldn't be myself, made me want to die. So now those people in your life who it might be targeted towards, how are they feeling? You're playing a part in that and how they're feeling. So I think if we can humanize it for them, then at that point, they're going to be more receptive to education. If we just go in with education modules, and I've told sports this, I said, I mute them and answer the questions whenever I've coached or done anything. I said, if you can't get me to do this as a gay man who does this work for a living, who is certified in diversity and inclusion from Cornell, if you can't get me to watch your module, no one else will. Who are you getting to watch? Like genuinely, who was watching them? And they can't answer. Because the answer is probably nobody. But that goes back to the point earlier where I said, you know, there was well-intentioned stuff that was put in place a long time ago and we've evolved past it, but sports have remained there. So I think targeting a multi-tiered approach and an approach that humanizes, educates, engages with folks, that's part of the humanization. Meet people where they're at. And I've had some conversations where I've met people where they're at, which, you know, for a lot of people would be like, I don't want to deal with this because it's like backwards thinking stuff. Meet them where they're at, have some patience. And then from there, in situations where it's less overt or violent, reform folks who, you know, do the wrong thing and ultimately look at how to grow sport and how this can grow sport. So many of our sports don't take into consideration a lot of these things from microaggressions to overt racism, sexism, homophobia that are keeping people away or have people quit, you know? So looking at these aspects and who to target, how to target, and then how to attract and retain people, I think is critical. One thing that you've kind of mentioned here, and I think when we talk about the LGBTQ plus community in sport, we always think of athletes, we always think of coaches, we think of officials. And one of the, the groups you mentioned earlier is fans. I think sometimes that group is overlooked. We, we maybe don't always think about how they feel in these environments, going to support. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I think it is potentially an overlooked group that isn't kind of always given the support that they need. And I know even in the media now, I see lots of stuff kind of saying with some of these major sporting events coming up in the summer. They still haven't come up with what are their policies for our fans to make sure our fans feel safe. Because unfortunately, there are situations that come up when LGBTQ plus fans are not safe in these environments. Totally. I think there was a study done by a university a few years ago, and it said that 75% of LGBTQ plus fans experience homophobia or transphobia in the stands of those polled. I was talking to a group. They were at a professional sporting event and an LGBT group on Pride Night and experienced on more than one occasion on Pride Nights with this team overt homophobia from other fans. This is something that, you know, like 
newer studies are showing that 20 to 23 percent of the population is LGBTQ+. That's a big chunk of people just from a let's take away just the human rights part and doing good. But just from a bottom line perspective that most like if we're going to talk professional sports are thinking about, that's a huge chunk of people you're not targeting. Especially when you're trying to grow fan bases, that's a huge chunk of new potential fans that you haven't targeted and creating an experience where they feel safe and included. But I'll tell you this, like I look at like hockey and a few different sports, there's a lot of queer fandoms out there and what they've done is they've created their own spaces and they've created their own little groups and pockets of people that they can engage with and talk about the sport, that they can have watch along if they're not in the same communities. They're finding their own ways outside of the system to love sport. And it's really sad because they should be welcomed and there in the main. This has been such a eye-opening and valuable conversation. And so if our listeners leave this conversation remembering one thing to start doing, one thing to stop doing, and something they need to continue to do to fight and to end homophobia in sports, what would your kind of closing remarks and advice to them be? I'm going to answer that in more than one thing, probably. Of course. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Because we can all create shifts. Those hockey players created a shift in me, made me realize that I could create shifts on a larger scale, which I've been fortunate to be able to do. And I created a shift in them, which led to them creating shifts in others. They became shift makers. They became agents of change. We all have that ability, whether it's LGBTQ plus or any other group. It doesn't matter the group, pick the group. Like it's the same formula in a sense. We all have the ability to be shift makers and we don't know the smallest little shift. One player telling another player to do push-ups on a track in Sudbury, Ontario in 2015 or 2016 led to me sitting here with you right now, led to me, you know, traveling the world and doing this work. Something so small had a ripple effect and we never know what the full impact that will be. Be a change maker, be an agent of change. You can create shifts. How we do it, humanize the environments we create and breaking down conformity. One thing to stop doing is conforming to the culture. Be an individual, especially if you're a leader, if you're a coach, if you're uh, running an organization, if you're involved in some capacity like that. Start breaking down those barriers. You're a weirdo embrace it. We're all different. And the fact that we all try and conform and be normal and exist the same is rigid. And it's nobody like that's not who we are as humans. Break down those barriers to conformity. If you continue to conform, you are perpetuating the same problems. Stop it. Uh, Continue to do. I think that's dependent on each individual, but I'll go with one speak. If you've spoken out, continue to speak out. Silence is a form of language and silence is deafening. If you are complacent and silent, you are complicit 
in what is going on. And I equate this to being like, if you're driving the getaway car and somebody's robbing a bank and you're like, well, I didn't rob the bank, you're still going to jail. If you're silent while the people around you are doing these things, you are complicit. So if you're speaking, continue to speak. How you speak matters. If you're just screaming at people and shouting, it's not going to work. You're going to create barriers in communication, in my opinion. I know people say that's tone policing, but I think tone policing in certain environments, depending on the fragility of the environment, it matters. It just does if we want to get something through. I think we need to continue to speak. If you're speaking, don't stop. Figure out ways to get your message across. Engage, educate, humanize. Do all these things to get people to critically think. Wow, well, Brock, thank you. There's so much here that's just gonna sink in. Matt and I are so happy and so proud to kind of have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Be a part of the movement to support change by sharing this episode. Check out our podcast notes for additional resources and to stay connected with our guests. This podcast was funded by Chantier Jeunesse and Rising Youth. If you or someone you know wants to make an impact in your community through a social entrepreneurship project, visit their website for more information.